0: but there's no fool like an old fool, or maybe even a pair of them. And so even though it's probably a bad idea, we do it anyway. Sometimes we stay at Mel's place in Bellevue, but mostly we stay at my high-rise condo in Seattle's denny Regrade neighborhood. We carpool together in the express lanes across Lake Washington and then pick up or drop off the other vehicle in the park-and-ride lot on the east side of the lake. New acquaintances are often curious about how a retired homicide cop happens to sit in the penthouse suite of one of Seattle's most desirable high-rises. The truth is, I wouldn't be in Belltown Terrace at all if it weren't for Ann Corley, my second wife, whose shocking death left me holding an unexpected fortune. My Mercedes S55 may have come to me used, but it's several years newer than Mel's BMW, so her 740 tends to be relegated to second-class status on most workdays. Once on the east side, we split up and drive onto the SHIT Squad B offices in Eastgate in our two separate vehicles. We park next to each other in the parking lot and ride up in the elevator together. Big secret. Sneaky and subtle. I suspect our boss, Harry Ball, knows all about it and simply chooses to keep his mouth shut on the subject. Mel showed up in the kitchen looking like a million dollars. She gave me a breezy kiss, filled our two thermos-traveling cups with coffee, and we headed out. Did you call Beverly and Lars? she asked. Beverly, my 90-something grandmother, lives with her second husband, Lars Jensen, in an assisted living facility up on Queen Anne Hill. Beverly was fading, they both were, and I dreaded calling for fear of hearing bad news. Not yet, I said, too early. Try giving them a call later, then, Mel advised. Kelly sent along that little framed picture of Kyle, the one they took in the hospital. She wanted to be sure we got it to them right away. Right, I said, maybe we can see them after work tonight. We rode up in the elevator together. Mel ducked into her office and turned on her radio. I was surprised to see that Barbara Galvin, our super-efficient office manager, wasn't at her desk. I found her in the break room, waiting for a pot of coffee to finish brewing. Heads up, she said, the big guy's here. The big guy, of course, was none other than Attorney General Ross Allen Connors. "'What's up?' I asked. "'Who knows?' Barbara replied with a shrug. "'He's been closeted with Harry for the last twenty minutes.' There was no doubt in my mind that Ross Connors had appeared in person to read me the riot act for carrying on with Mel. When he showed up outside my door a few minutes later, I was ready to take full responsibility for our little indiscretion. "'Hey, Bo,' Ross said. "'Do you mind?' "'Come on in,' I replied. "'Be my guest.' "'Ross Connors is a big man, someone who fills up any room he enters. That goes triple for my tiny office.' At 6'4 and 280, he looks like what he was in high school and college, a top-drawer tackle. He's also an experienced politician with finely tailored clothing and good looks that go with that territory. But Ross was beginning to show his age. His wife's very public suicide a year or so earlier had taken its toll. His hair was solid gray, and there were dark circles under his eyes, as though he wasn't sleeping well. I could certainly relate to that. Holding a cup of coffee, Ross settled back in my only guest chair. He took a tentative sip of the coffee and then heaved a contented sigh. Much better, he said. I don't know who made that first pot and was like drinking crankcase oil. That would be Harry, I told him, his own personal witch's brew. The rest of us have learned to wait until Barbara Galvin makes the next pot. Wise decision, Ross said. Remind me next time. When Ross reached over and pushed the door shut, I figured he was building up to giving me my dressing down, but he didn't. Instead, he took another measured sip of coffee. "'So what are you working on these days?' he asked. "'The missing persons thing,' I answered. Harry Eye Ball, with his usual flair for understatement, had shortened the handle to MPT, and MPT was definitely Ross Connor's own personal baby.' It had dawned on Ross that it was time for a systematic review of missing persons reports from all over the state. He had embarked on a program that included making the effort of tracking down and interviewing surviving family members and putting all relevant information on Washington State's missing persons reports into a national database and comparing our list to any nationwide reports of unidentified